right. Good morning, church. Good morning. As we were wrapping up our series in John way back in June, I had asked some people about topics or passages of Scripture they'd like to hear uh, more about on some of the Sundays that I'm preaching this summer. I got some great feedback with some great topics and questions, and so I'm going to try to tackle some of those this summer uh, before we jump into a few series later on this fall and winter. Now I'm going to try to put some of these questions that are closely related into a single message in order to cover a few different things at the time that I've got. Now today's topics may not seem totally connected at first, but they definitely go hand in hand, so I thought that these would be good pairing to make up one message. Uh, so let's just start with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for today. Thank you that we can come here together, that you have drawn us to this place to worship you. God, may our worship be honoring and glorifying to you as we sing. Lord, and just give us attentive ears and eyes to hear your word, to see your word in Scripture. God, I pray that, that uh, you just get this messenger out of the way, Lord, that your spirit speak to your people here this morning, that they would hear from you that they would see into your word what you would have to tell us. God, it may this morning just be about you and your glory and honor. And God, I just pray that we can be uh, encouraged and strengthened as we look into your word this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so what are the topics or questions we're going to look at today? Well, the first major topic that came up was the sovereignty of God. What does it mean that Yahweh is sovereign? Does sovereign mean that God is active in creation or that he is just above creation? In what ways is Yahweh sovereign? Is sovereignty related to God's working in creation or is it just about his power as God? Are there areas of creation that he is not sovereign over? Does Yahweh set aside his own sovereignty for people and is he subject to our actions? Well, these are a lot of questions and I hope I can do them justice and help provide some biblical clarity in answering them. And because the Bible is the Word of God, it is God's revelation to us about Himself, I don't want to answer these questions using anything but Scripture. And so I'm going to take all these questions and reframe it into one. I'm going to ask, what does God have to say about Him being sovereign over creation? What does God have to say about Him being sovereign over all creation? So let's look into some Scripture together. I'm not sure I have the first one or two queued up there, but uh, they're well known, so it's probably okay. The first one is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So now when Moses and the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness after God freed them from slavery in Egypt, before he led them into the promised land, the people of Israel saw and were constantly going after all the false gods of the people groups around them. There were sun gods, moon gods, star gods, earth gods, rain gods, animal gods, and so forth. Gods for everything and every occasion. As we can read in Scripture, despite everything that Yahweh did for Israel, they always went after these other gods. Now at that time, if you can just imagine the ancient Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, kind of they've been freed from slavery and they haven't got to the promised land, they were not asking Moses, nor, were they, nor was Moses interested in communicating exactly how and when creation came into being. Rather, Moses, in writing Genesis 1, was answering the people's question, Who is Yahweh? And who is he in relation 
to everything around us. Unlike all these little gods said to be responsible for this or that, Yahweh is the one true God, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. By his power, he spoke everything into existence. And so he is sovereign in that everything that we can see, hear, taste, touch, smell, all that exists, exists because Yahweh brought it into existence. And so did God simply create and sit back and watch his creation play out? Hebrews 1.3, in referring to Jesus, God the Son, it says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. God did not just create, but he sustains all things. Creation exists because of Yahweh, but it's not self-sustaining. It continues to exist because of Yahweh. When you wake up in the morning and your heart continued to beat all night and your lungs filled with air all night, they did this not by their own power, but by the sustaining power of our God. Now, I think this is probably where my notes kick in. Uh, Colossians 1, 16 to 17. Again, in reference to Christ, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So all things were created, and all things are held together. They were created through him, that is, Yahweh God the Son, is part of creating and sustaining along with the Father. But there's something here we, we just can't gloss over. All things were created for him. All things were created for him. He is sovereign in that he sustains all things, but that sovereignty is active in that he continuously sustains and upholds all things, and all things were created for him. He is sovereign in that we exist for him. Our purpose is in him. We are his. All are his. All things are his. All things belong to God. We are not our own. So there is a sense of ownership or control or possession involved in the sovereignty of God. And so if all things were created for God the Son, what does God's word have to teach us about the purpose or plan of God? And if his sovereignty extends to actually bringing about this plan and purpose? I'm going to go through a whole bunch of scripture the rest of this morning, and so it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, so please feel free just to follow along that way. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Meaning there is no outside force that's influencing God in any way. He's not bound or restricted by anything. He truly has a free will. Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Verse 27 for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? That means his hand is stretched out. He is active. He is involved. He is working. Who will turn it back? Who will stop him from accomplishing that which he is working to achieve? Isaiah 37, 26 says, Have you not heard, this is God speaking, that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11, 
Jake read that earlier. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's not just sitting back. He is active. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When God has a plan and a purpose and he works to accomplish that, it is done. Our God does not fail. Yahweh, our creator God, tells us that all of creation exists from him and through him and for him. And that he both has a purpose in it, but is also active in bringing about that purpose. There is nothing that prevents his purpose from being accomplished. He does not leave his plans to chance. He ensures his purpose is fulfilled by his bringing it about. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Kind of like the Colossians passage. And then Paul writes, To him be glory forever. And we can see in a number of passages that what God is ultimately at work doing is bringing about his glory. God's sovereignty is seen in that he has a purpose for creation and he is actively bringing it about. Does this mean that what happens in nature with the creatures of the earth and with people happen because God is sovereignly involved in all aspects of creation? Well, there's some verses for that too. Psalm 74, 16 to 17. The psalmist writes, Yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Job 37, 6 to 12 says, He directs the snow to fall on the earth and tells the rain to pour down. The stormy wind comes from its chamber and the driving winds bring the cold. God's breath sends the ice, freezing wide expanses of water. He loads the clouds with moisture, and they flash with his lightning. The clouds churn about at his direction. They do whatever he commands throughout the earth. Wow, Job gives examples of God's actively bringing about various types of weather and temperatures. They're all done by his word, by God directly. Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now the original language in Amos here is that of natural disasters. He is saying that nothing happens, not even disasters in nature, unless God himself has brought it about for his purpose to accomplish that which he desires. Matthew 8.27, you should know this one. And the men marveled, saying, speaking of Jesus, what sort of man is this that even the, even the winds and the sea obey him? God's sovereignty is seen in that nature is subject to God. And it's not just subject, but that God actively brings about all of what we see in nature. Now earlier, again, we read from Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. In this passage, Yahweh tells his people that he declares the end 
the, so the end of all things, the end of time from before creation. He has a purpose and he is bringing it to pass. He will do it. He's active in bringing about his plans. And we see in various passages of scripture where God sovereignly uses animals to bring this about. I'm not going to read these passages now. I'm just going to highlight some of them. We see this in the story of Jonah. We see this in Daniel when he was thrown into the den of lions. We see this with the ravens feeding Elijah. We see this in the plague sent to Egypt, the, the bugs, the frogs. In Matthew 10, Jesus is telling his disciples not to fear people, specifically those who would imprison or even kill them, but rather they are to fear God. And he comforts them with the knowledge that everything that happens does so at God's command. And in verse 29, as you can see, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Now in Luke chapter 5, Peter had been out fishing and he caught nothing. Jesus tells him to go out again and let down his net and then they nearly sink two boats full of fish. Now just pause for a second. Was it mere coincidence that the whole night Peter had been fishing that he caught nothing on his own? Was it mere coincidence that a massive school of fish just happened to come by at this time and swim right into their nets, so much so that they were sinking two boats? And was all this a mere coincidence that these fish were not there and then they were there just as Jesus was teaching and using this as an object lesson in his teaching? Was that a mere coincidence? No. God's sovereignty is seen in that even in the comings and goings of the creatures of the earth do so by his command. And they carry out his purpose. So, God's sovereignty extends to his creation of all things, his sustaining of all things, his actively bringing about the weather and the events in nature, and he's active in the creatures of this earth. But what about humanity? Now again... Let's be sure to look to God's own revelation of himself as we seek to answer this question. And again, I'm going through these very quickly today. If you're sitting here saying, oh, but Keith, Keith, please, I'm away in Nashville this week, but make a note, shoot me a text. I want to get together and talk more about this with you uh, if you have questions about this. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Where? In heaven. Oh, and where else? On earth, in the seas and the deeps, not just on the planet, but in all of creation. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does on earth. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is not reading this book. He's not passively reading a book that was written by another author. No, God is the author of this book that has everything about you and every day of your life in it. Isaiah 40, 12 to 17. We've got a couple of big ones here. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? Who taught God the path of justice? 
and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Jumping ahead to Isaiah 45, 5-12. God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Now this is talking about us in our trying to get our way as opposed to God's plans. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. Now, for those of you that are my age and younger, what the heck is he talking about with host? That's like a group of people, an army. Uh, just It means all the people of the earth. That God stretches out his hands and commands all the people of the earth. Here's one of my favorite ones. From King Nebuchadnezzar of all people, Daniel 4, 34 to 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And here we go. And he, meaning God, does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does all he pleases in all areas of his creation. A couple of just quick examples of this. Genesis 50 to 20, verse 20, this is the story of Joseph gets sold into Egypt. The brothers come. The brothers are worried that Joseph is going to kill them for what they did because they sold him into slavery. And what does Joseph say? After he tells them, it wasn't you that sent me to Egypt, it was God that sent me to Egypt. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God brought Joseph to Egypt because he had a plan and he was fulfilling it. Acts 2.23, Peter is talking to the people, these Jewish people, and he says, This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. A couple chapters later, Acts 4, this is the early church praying. They, this is a prayer that they are praying to God. And they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So all these people to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We can see that God is absolutely sovereign over all of creation, including the lives of people. His sovereignty is not laid aside for the sake of people's plans or desires. His sovereignty extends to carrying out his plans according to his purpose for his glory in the lives of individual people. He is not handcuffed by the choices of people. He is not limited to the actions of people. He does not simply respond what people are doing in the hopes of making something good come out of the mess that we get ourselves into on a daily basis. No, Yahweh is sovereign. He is a sovereign God, and he is bringing about his purpose for creation, which is his ultimate glory. Now, I wish I could spend more time on this, but we spent a lot of months on this already. As we've seen through our study of the Gospel of John, and even before that, we looked at our statement of faith that says, a Christian is someone saved by grace. This sovereignty extends to salvation as well. God is sovereign over the salvation of rebellious sinners. He ensures the victory of Christ. He ensures the salvation of his people, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world by actively working in our hearts, freeing us from slavery to sin, and drawing us to Christ. Now, I don't have this one on the screen because I just thought of it before I came up here. But if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I want to just quickly read the first five verses. 1 Peter 1. 1 to 5. This is an incredible passage. This is Peter, loudmouth Peter, who always just goes crazy and <laughs> says crazy things. And here he says something by the Spirit of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, meaning chosen, called, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is the Jews living all over the world according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What an incredible passage. Our salvation is not contingent on our pulling ourselves up from our own bootstraps, pulling ourselves out of our own rebellion, freeing us from our own slavery and coming to Christ all on our own. It is by the work of God. It is from this new birth from above. This leads into another question, the second one I want to answer. This question comes from this topic of God's ultimate sovereignty. If God is sovereign, even in salvation, then why do missions or even preach the gospel? If God is sovereign, even in salvation, then why do missions or even preach the gospel? Well, this is a great question. I love this question. Now, before I give some reasons, I just want to quickly flip it around. Let's look at it from another angle. If it were actually up to a person themselves, by their own power and strength of will, to muster up true faith in Christ from within themselves, 
Even though there's numerous passages of Scripture that explain how we're not able to do this. And if God has done all He can to save people, and now can only wait and hope that people come to Him of their own accord, and if Jesus, God in the flesh, could preach the truth powerfully to people and perform amazing miracles in front of and on people, and those people still utterly reject Jesus, what hope do I have to convince someone to turn from sin and turn to Jesus? If our Lord failed, what hope do I have? But, but, since Scripture shows us a God who cannot fail, a God who has a plan and a purpose for His creation, and is actively bringing about His purpose for creation, and since Scripture shows us that God is at work in the hearts of people and that those he calls will come, and those who come will be raised, and nothing can cause a separation between God and his children, we can have absolute confidence in missions or preaching the gospel. Why? Because we know that God can change any heart. He can change the hardest of hearts. God cannot fail to accomplish that which he desires. And if the Father has given you to the Son, it doesn't matter what kind of mess you've made of your life. It doesn't matter how far from God you've wandered. You will come to the Son, and the Son will give you life. There's an amazing Trinitarian harmony of will and work fulfilling the salvation of God's people. And so why do we preach the gospel? Well, first we preach the gospel, we do mission work because Jesus did. All through John, we see Jesus preaching and teaching, caring for people. Many did not believe. We see these stories of Jesus proclaiming the gospel, and what happens? Some come to faith, and some walk away. Jesus explains the hard truth about sin and salvation, and some people grumble and complain, and others fall to their knees in worship. We do missions, we preach the gospel, because Jesus set the ultimate example for us. But there's more than that. Let's look at a few other scriptures together. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds the church what the gospel message is. We looked at this on Easter Sunday. Jesus is the Christ. He died and rose again according to God's plan, and he reigns over all creation. And before Paul explains all of this, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. It's through Paul's preaching that God reached those that he called. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 15. Ooh, this is a good one. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, 
because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. We preach the gospel. We do missions because it is through the proclamation of the gospel. It is through the public reading of his word that God calls out to his people. As Paul writes in both his letters to the Corinthians and to the church in Rome, for those who are of the world, the message is folly. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. It makes no sense. It cannot be understood. But to those whom God has given ears to hear, the message is life. It is freedom. It is the power of salvation. And as Jesus says in John chapter 10, when God calls, those who are his know his voice and they come. Now finally, at the very basic level, I mean, this really should be the top, but at the very basic level, we preach the gospel, we do missions because our Lord commanded us to. Our Lord commanded us to. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority, sounds like sovereignty, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The church is called to this task. As obedient servants of our Lord and King, we joyfully carry out the tasks that He has commanded us to. We have been saved from our rebellion. We have been brought into right relationship with our Creator, and so we proclaim the truth of His gospel. And that is, Jesus reigns. Our God reigns over creation. He has reconciled rebellious sinners to himself. He has defeated death on the cross. He has freed his people from slavery to sin. And so we come humbly before him. We submit to him. We honor him. We praise him. We repent of our sin and rebellion. And in submission to him, we joyfully proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all. Knowing that our all-powerful God, who cannot fail can change any heart, can break any chain, and he calls us to preach, and in that preaching he draws more and more of his people to himself. Let us never stop worshiping our sovereign king, nor proclaiming the good news of his kingdom to all. Now before I close in prayer, if you're here today or if you're watching online, whether you've heard the word of the Lord preached many times or this message of our sovereign creator God is new to you and you have this desire in your heart to receive forgiveness, to be reconciled with God, then consider that God's Holy Spirit is at work in you bringing you to this place. He is calling you to come, to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to him, to come and submit to him as Lord and King. And I invite you now to do this. Submit yourself to Christ. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, if you take this step of faith, or if you have more questions about what this means, then I want to encourage you to come and speak with me or one of our other elders here at the front. Come talk with us after the service. We would love to talk with you some more about this and pray with you. Let's pray.
Holy Father God, your kingdom rules. You reign over all your creation. We thank you, Jesus, for coming into your own creation, for living the perfect life in our place, for taking our place on the cross and dying, for taking our sin upon yourself and placing your righteousness on us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, we, that you are before the Heavenly Father now interceding on our behalf. God, thank you that because of your revelation to us, we know that you cannot fail. You are perfect in every way. And you perfectly accomplish all that you purpose. And God, thank you that we can have this assurance of salvation. We can know that you are holding on to us. That you will never let us go. And so, Lord, I ask for more and more of your spirit upon us here this morning continually draw us to yourself, continually open our eyes to your word, continually open our heart to you. Give us a desire to want to kneel before you in submission and worship. And Lord, I pray you just use this church in mighty ways to draw more and more people to yourself. God, I pray for all of those who are here this morning, who are in this community, who are watching online, God, whom you are calling to yourself, Lord, that they hear this message, that they hear the words of someone in this congregation speaking to them in relationship, that they hear that as a calling from you and they come and they submit and they repent. Lord, I just pray that through this, you just receive all honor and glory and praise. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.